0: Listening to Demise, the podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, the series Two and a Half Men. Today I'm recording in my living room because it's July 4th and I have the day off, and I thought I'd tackle the voodoo that I do and maybe another episode on the series so that we can progress faster. Because I know some of you are just like, oh my god, I wish he'd stop talking about that fucking show. I'm hoping that those of you who are regular regular listeners who are tuning in for me, that you're enjoying it even if you don't like Two and a Half Men. So, I don't really have anything to talk about other than Two and a Half Men in this episode. Obviously... I'm not going to do my usual spiel where I tell you if you want to support the podcast. La-di-da. Because this is the fourth part of the series. And by now, you've heard me say all of that. And if this is your first episode of the podcast, stop. Just go back and listen to the other episodes before this one. I need you to stop. Okay? So... I'm just going to get into my thesis, and we'll discuss anything that we need to discuss further. Thank you for listening. Mark Roberts helms the voodoo that I do, which introduces Mia, the first woman Charlie pursues, and maintains a relationship with in the series, and the lengths Charlie Charlie goes to in order to convince her to date him. Through Mia, Roberts proves the one personality quirk that gains Charlie's attention more than youth or alcohol is rejection, and he must chase the women who reject him until he wins them over. As Alan prattles on in the coffee shop, Charlie spots Mia and sits at the table adjacent to her. Throughout the first two seasons, Charlie rarely fails in his attempts to flirt with women, so, audience the audience expects him to pick up this woman and have a meaningless fling. Roberts does not introduce Mia, indicating any significance in her role throughout season three. As the episode starts, she is another nameless woman, probably inserted to perpetuate Charlie's CAD image. However, when he first says hi, Mia smiles and returns her attention to a magazine. When he introduces himself, I'm Charlie, she answers, don't care. While Mia appears attractive, Charlie normally pursues younger women, yet Mia is closer to his age, mature, and does not take interest in random men hitting on her in a coffee shop. Her rejection only attracts Charlie more as she presents a challenge. He explains unprovoked, look, if you knew me at all and shut me down, well, that would be one thing, but to... Be dismissed on a simple hello. That's a tough pill to swallow. And Mia says, would you rather I give it to you in a suppository? If Alan, the reserved family man, put forth an effort to flirt with the stranger and they said this, he would forget his goal and withdraw. Instead, Charlie stops talking but plots another tactic. Unlike Candy, Rose, or any woman Charlie takes home... Mia's refusal allows Roberts an opportunity to showcase Charlie's irrational pursuit, which embodies his fear of failure. Ultimately, Mia's rejection of Charlie provides him the inspiration to follow the insecurities he gained as a child through Evelyn's neglect and admonishment. If Charlie convinces a refined woman like Mia to love him, then he satisfies a void left by his mother. Alan walks into the kitchen as Berta and Charlie look through the phone book, taking notes. Charlie explains, I'm mapping out all the dance studios within a five-mile radius of the coffee shop. I can't stop thinking about the girl I met. I must have her. Stalking a stranger aside, Charlie indicates his interest is not in Mia at all, but the conquest. When a woman rejects him, Charlie must rectify his failure as it questions his masculinity. From his perspective, he is a handsome, rich man with a house on the beach, and every woman wants him. Mia ruins that image, so he stalks Mia. Charlie does not do so out of obligation to his reputation rather than interest in an actual relationship. Okay, so I want to stop here, and I want to talk about modern-day stalking because stalking in... see this would have been 2005 maybe stalking in 2022 is a lot different see you don't have to break out a map or atlas you can just look on Google Maps or your phone whichever works but there's also social media and social media stalking is the new kind of stalking because you know, going around someone's house, looking through their trash, that's, that's old and outdated and, quite frankly, sloppy. So these days, if you want to stalk someone, you just look at their social media. And you can even figure out where they are. If you're wanting to meet them in person and catch them off guard, you can figure out a way to do it. It's pretty easy. Now, I strongly advise everyone out there listening, don't tell... The world where you're going at all times. In fact, a lot of times when I go on vacation, I don't state where I'm going. I don't even I don't even tell people, oh, I'm going on vacation this week. It's none of their business. I don't have to tell them, and I don't feel the need to brag about it. But beyond that, there are so many different ways to figure out who someone is from just their first name. And if you have their last name, even better. I mean... Getting on Facebook and looking in the area, or if you know someone who might know them, if you're friends with someone who's friends with a lot of people locally, it's so easy. I mean, even if they have an unlisted profile, you could find someone that they're friends with, look at one of their posts, and look through the people who like the post and see if they've liked it. You could Google it. You could do so many different things to find someone on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. If you can't find someone on Facebook. It's likely that they don't have a Facebook. Because even if you have an unlisted profile like me. There's a way to get there. I had a, an online stalker a few years ago. Who did not know my last name. And yet they found my wife's profile. They couldn't find me. They found my wife. I blocked... A stalker. This is a separate stalker. I had a few. Who I blocked. Okay. So either they had an alternate profile. Which a lot of us do. Or they just typed in my last name. I don't even. We weren't even married. We were engaged. My wife and I at the time. And this person found them. Tried adding, adding them on Facebook. And messaged her. I mean... It's sick. It's psychotic. If someone blocks you on social media, don't add their spouse on social media. That's fucked up. So, what Charlie's doing is a very rudimentary form of stalking, but it's it's clever. I mean, he noticed that she was reading a dance magazine. He figures, oh, she must be a dancer. And then he goes to the trouble to find every dance studio in the area. And yes, he goes to every single one before he finds Mia. The audience does not learn Mia's name until Charlie reveals how he not only deciphered her profession, but his intense perception about a stranger. Look, I know her name, Mia. It was written on her coffee cup. I know she's a dancer because she was wearing those leg warmer thingies and reading a dance magazine. Roberts writes Charlie as saying Mia's name rather than her introducing herself to signify her importance. Now, I'm going to break through right here and tell you it is a big deal that Charlie says her name first. That she doesn't say, hey, I'm Mia. For Charlie to acknowledge that she has a name is a big deal. Unlike Kate in the first season, Charlie pursues Mia as a serious relationship as a season 3 arc. His disinterest in changing his lifestyle and leaving her at the altar in the season finale portrays Charlie's fear of commitment and never actually wanting Mia. His reasoning to Alan encapsulates the season. If a girl like Mia were easy to climb, her head would be covered with flags. Nobody takes a picture of the fish that jumps on your boat. Charlie comprehends courtship as a sport, so Mia serves as his prey. Since. She gives him the cold shoulder throughout the episode. He takes more risk in order to please her. Her demeanor reminds him of Evelyn, who he never pleased in childhood or adulthood. Unlike the women Charlie woos, Evelyn takes no pride in her son's achievements as a musician, property owner, or millionaire. Therefore, winning over Mia appeases that desire in Charlie. I'm going to also note here in case you're wondering if you don't know who Mia is or if you have a good impression of Mia, just because Charlie's not a great partner doesn't mean Mia is either. I think Mia is actually very bad for Charlie. She does. She's much like Evelyn in that she does not appreciate his profession. Uh, she has no interest in the property that he owns or the fact that he's a millionaire. She really just wants to... This is what she kind of does in the the season finale. She wants Alan and Jake to move out. And she actually... I think she actually wants to move somewhere else with Charlie. I don't think she wants to live on the beach. And there's an episode that I'm probably going to cover. I don't know. Where she makes him do a bunch of things that he doesn't want to do. And she's also making him wait to have sex they don't have sex for a very long time compared to charlie's other relationships uh you know i i, I will say that chelsea who is charlie's very boring yet the longest term relationship he has in, in the series besides Rhodes, of course she's introduced instantly as someone who's having sex with charlie i I have very little to say about Chelsea, surprisingly, because there's not much to say. I do analyze her character in the thesis, but overall, she's pretty bland, and a lot of fans didn't like her, and I don't know why they kept her on the series for so long, because they didn't really give her much depth, and then eventually, she just didn't like Charlie anymore, and they broke up. Anyway. Mia catches Charlie looking inside her dance studio and he walks into her classroom as if he stumbles upon her business, which highlights not only a stalker character flaw, but his inability to accept rejection. When Charlie says, hey, you're a teacher, Mia avoids him, hey, you're a stalker. He fails his covert operation when she points out the map Charlie holds. After Charlie keeps pleading his case, Mia states she does not have time to date her her work consumes her attention. Rather than call the police, Mia keeps replying to Charlie, which indicates a small level of interest. Considering she later agrees to marry him, Mia cannot deny an attraction to Charlie. The second denial does not deter him, though. Revealing Evelyn's influence in his personality, Charlie forces Jake to take Mia's class in order to woo her as his unhealthy obsession prevents him from understanding even his family's boundaries. Jake appears in the following scene eating pizza as Charlie brings him a soda, and Alan already knows that Charlie intends to ask Jake to take ballet lessons. Of course, Alan initially chastises Charlie's depraved behavior, but Charlie insists he can convince Jake to dance. After Jake finishes eating, Charlie says... You know what I like to do after a nice big meal? Learn to dance. You're gonna learn to dance ballet, and Jake initially disagrees. Wanna bet? Taking Jake to the grocery store in the pilot episode backfires when the woman thinks Charlie and Alan are a couple, but openly taking his nephew to a dance studio in order to date Mia breaches a moral boundary. Considering Charlie willingly emasculates Jake, he echoes Evelyn and her abuse and her abusive Parental Tactics Abusive Parental Tactics Patrick, yes Generational Trauma clearly appears In the scenario By the way, I want to pipe in here I've heard that generational trauma Goes beyond just uh, Affected behaviors That trauma can be Genetically passed on I don't know if that's true or not But if it is I've got a whole shit ton of it From my parents Charlie even bribes Jake. How much money would I have to give you to take ballet lessons? Not unlike Evelyn, Charlie breaks out his checkbook to get what he wants out of Jake. The persistence demonstrates Charlie as an instigator rather than a victim. Typically, Mia relents to Charlie after a montage of Jake dancing, which ignores his earlier deplorable actions as if the stalking and inflicting trauma makes the relationship worthwhile. Roberts plays on romantic comedy tropes but never presents Charlie as if he never breaks a moral code when stalking and eventually wooing Mia his depravity plays a hu- plays as humor rather than a horror film though. That's one thing about this show is that while yeah it, it relies on certain tropes I will say that this, this method of never giving up until the woman gives in. It's definitely presented as being creepy. And it, the thing is is that Charlie Sheen does a really good job of portraying Charlie Harper as being depraved. But the audience is already on his side. That's the only thing about that. Like if this were you, which is a bad example because there are shit tons of people who would love Joe to stalk them and love them. Yuck, and I love that show by the way, it, it's, it's definitely something that it, it comes off as creepy rather than romantic as it would in a romantic comedy. Roberts returns for humiliation as a visual medium and takes away one of Charlie's dearest vices, sex, and thus inhibits how he normally functions as a man. The episode commences as Charlie and Mia kiss on his bed, and Mia stops them to say, "I thought we said we're going to take things slow. I want to talk about us." To which Charlie counters, "Well, that redirects the old blood flow." Roberts depicts Charlie so close to his goal, only to pull his most desired experience away. So the F episode follows the womanizing Charlie as he abstains from sex until he almost rela- he almost ends the relationship. While the audience might interpret Charlie not giving into Mia's offer in the conclusion as growth, he takes little interest in Mia as a person. When Mia says, I just want to make sure if we do this, it's for the right reasons, she lets Charlie know that sex does not play an important role in her relationships. She prefers emotional intimacy. Charlie reconciles this abstinence through denial and delusion as he professes love for Mia because he sees her as a sexual goalpost. So the relationship never finds the emotional foundation Mia dictates as necessary for fulfillment. Charlie reveals to Alan, I think I might be in love with Mia. Taking his character arc As a whole into account, Charlie's one long-lasting relationship is Chelsea-Malini, which lasts two seasons. In Season 4, Charlie recovers from Mia with little emotional residue throughout the season. Yet, Season 8 presents Charlie truly mourning not only Chelsea, but his lifestyle as a whole. Thus, Charlie says he loves Mia, but he deludes himself because she delays his sexual gratification. Roberts hints at Charlie's growth when he exclaims, We've been seeing each other for a month, and we're waiting to sleep together until our relationship has a solid foundation. Maybe I'm ready to build something with a woman that isn't solely based on sex. Listen, I've made it pretty far into this podcast without drinking any water. I'm going to have to now. A montage depicts Charlie and Mia as he rubs suntan lotion on her back as Mia reads The Prophet by Cahil Gibran. I tried to find some sort of significance to that, and I don't recall finding anything, but it, it might just be a random book that they gave her to make her seem smart. They hold hands while walking through an art museum and at a bowling alley. In each scene, Charlie feigns interest while seeing sexual imagery and everything. Living without sex forces Charlie to look at what presents meaning in his life, and he finds little substance in the activity, activities Mia enjoys. While he obviously does not appreciate Mia's intellectualism, the bowling sequence depicts him dropping a ball on his foot while she eats nachos in an unintentionally seductive manner. That's, that's another thing that I'll point out. They don't have anything in common. The, all this relationship is forced by Charlie and Mia... Because Charlie wants to have sex with her, and he wants to prove to himself that he can maintain a lasting relationship. And Mia thinks that she can change Charlie. I mean, he's a good-looking, rich guy, but he doesn't have the substance that Mia thinks he should have. And in reality, the substance that Charlie does have, from my perspective, is his trauma and his musical ability. Because... Uh, it's not actually revealed until later on in the series that he had high hopes and aspirations as a mu- as a musician and writing jingles was just an easy way out and an easy way to make money. Unable to commit to no sex, Charlie tries talking about polyamory in barbaric terminology and almost loses Mia as a result. As they watch TV, Mia offers, You don't have to give up the things you like just because of me, which is not true. In My is Meat, Mia forbids Charlie from enjoying cigars, alcohol, and unhealthy food. Mia also deludes herself in pursuing Charlie because she thinks she can change him. Somehow, even when Charlie suggests he s- sleeps with other women, she comes back to him. Charlie says, There's something I want to run past you. I was thinking maybe if I had an outlet that, you know, took the pressure off. Something casual, meaningless. Of course... Mia calls Charlie crazy and leaves and uh, but their relationship does not end. That statement presents a huge red flag and Mia decides Charlie is still worth her time. When Charlie brings flowers to her apartment, she even apologizes. I shouldn't have got so angry with you. Not to say your outlet idea wasn't incredibly juvenile. The point is, I don't really have any right objecting to you sleeping with other women. We don't have any commitment Despite that she calls Charlie an ass when he thinks they settle the disagreement, Mia sends a mixed message. Rather than directly stating she expects a promise from Charlie that he will remain faithful to her, she atones as if she misled him. Charlie aptly responds, "'You want me to make a commitment that I will not have sex with anyone else while at the same time I'm not having sex with you? Are you insane?' After only dating Charlie for a month and not establishing a committed relationship status at this point, Mia asks him to change for her, her insecurity that Charlie will lose interest in her if they sleep together manifest in this conversation. No matter Charlie's status as an alcoholic, sex addict, he does not hide his true nature to Mia. She should end the relationship based on the standards she expects from Charlie at this point. When he disingenuously suggests she give up dancing, Mia responds, Dancing is my life, Charlie. From Charlie's perspective, sex and alcohol make up his life while jingle writing pays the bills. In her original appearance on the series, Mia says her career as a dancer and instructor take up too much time, yet she spends an abundance of time with Charlie throughout this episode. While Charlie's persistence in forcing Jake to dance won her over, she still humored his advances and never directly turned Charlie away. Mia does not like Charlie Harper so much as the idea of who she molds Charlie into becoming, so his personality and demons possess little interest to her. I want to, before we get into candy, I want to highlight something here with the polyamory thing. Um, I know someone who's in a throuple. I used to work with this guy, and he's a great guy, but he got divorced at some point and then this was like over the pandemic and ended up in a relationship with a married woman and her husband is aware of this and they apparently live together and um her children that she had with her husband are very fond of my friend as if he's a, another father to them which is great but there's also this this idea of an open relationship, and a lot of people, well, I say a lot. I don't know very many people who have open relationships. The The idea of an open relationship is still relatively new to people, and this was in the, the mid-2000s. What Charlie suggesting is something that a lot more people are open to if you were to... To suggest it in a relationship, it may not shut things down in the relationship. It may get dismissed, but it may not be the result. What results in you breaking up? Um, It's it's something that's more commonly spoken about. I I I personally couldn't do it. Um, Yeah, I mm -mm. I I don't need. But we don't have to go into me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm getting tongue-tied here thinking about how to explain this. And I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to take a sip of water and then we're going to get into the next paragraph. Roberts introduces Alan's second wife, Candy, as Charlie's quick rebound after his fight with Mia as he tries replacing one woman with the next to fill an emotional void. After Mia shows up and sees Charlie with candy on the deck, Charlie bumps his face against the glass door as he runs to her. The metaphor is obvious. Charlie likes the idea of Mia because of the security of a relationship in his late 30s, yet Mia is incompatible with him. Mia says, You were such a schmuck. I came because I, after I cooled down I started to miss you and I wanted to make love. By the way... Um, Even in 2005, that was an antiquated statement. Don't don't tell someone that you want to make love. That's weird. During the, the episode's first scene, Mia stops Charlie as he tries to initiate sex. After their argument about commitment and waiting to consummate, Mia drives to Charlie's house to misdirect him again. While Roberts does not depict Mia as manipulative, she clearly does not know what she wants. Charlie dismisses Candy's presence. I would trade a hundred of her for one of you, which prompts Mia, you want a commitment? Mia chases a concept. She wants a partner who fits a specific mold. Rather than giving in to her lust for Charlie, she tries to form him into that mold. The truth is Charlie cannot change for the better due to his alcoholism and constant self-gratification through meaningless liaisons. Since society, young women, and other men in, this, in his social circle encourages this behavior for so long Charlie cannot break that cycle Mia misdirects the audience since Charlie declines her offer to go to his bedroom but he does so to show her he is capable of change when realistically he jumps back into that pattern after her departure Don Foster depicts Charlie as increasingly desperate for sexual gratification as he keeps pressuring Mia to sleep with him and love isn't blind, it's retarded these uh, these titles are not politically correct. I will go ahead and say it. There's a uh, an episode called "That Pistol Pack and Hermaphrodite" that I believe is in season eight. So I don't know that the the episode titles ever appear in the actual episodes, though. So there's that. Charlie gives Mia a bracelet with. One month, two weeks, and four days, inscribed on a charm, which signifies the time we've spent together exclusively in a committed relationship without any sex. Charlie pressures Mia not only through a gift, but the reminder that his commitment to their relationship inspires him to remain celibate. This gesture communicates he is done waiting without giving an ultimatum. After all, Charlie does not want to admit defeat and give up the chase alan answers the door and candy says she wants to see charlie so alan interrupts the romantic scene on the balcony as he gestures that a woman is at the front door alan says charlie she's been calling here for days don't you think it's time you let her know you're in an exclusive relationship with another woman Foster writes an unnatural line as Alan says exclusive relationship with another woman as the specificity not only mocks Charlie's previous commitment testimonial but reminds him that keeping Candy around only threatens the promise to Mia. As Alan breaks the news to Candy that Charlie cannot see her, Mia adds specificity to Alan's underhanded accusation. You know what Candy is? She's a lifeboat. You're keeping a lifeboat for when this ship sinks. Mia does not say Candy serves as Charlie's safety net if their relationship fails. She acknowledges the reality of when their relationship fails. The truth surrounding their situation stands outside the front door as Alan makes up an excuse about Charlie. He has several women willing to fulfill his sexual desires. He only wants Mia because he knows he cannot actually have her in his life for long, and the sexual conquest makes a bigger notch in his bedpost than others. Mia keeps Charlie as a distant sec- what? Mia keeps Charlie at a distance sexually, as if he will fail as if he will fall for her emotionally. Yet she acknowledges their relationship has an expiration date. Charlie responds, what do you want me to do, Mia? Call every woman I know just to announce that I'm in a committed relationship? I acknowledge the Facebook thing in a minute. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about making it Facebook official. We will get into this. Once again, Foster emphasizes unnatural dialogue. While social media allows people to announce their relationship status as if publicly barking they are now off limits, this episode aired on February 6, 2006. Before people, Charlie's age embraced Facebook. His point possesses a timely significance in that he cannot let his previous partners know he is in an exclusive relationship unless they approach him. Then he has to decide whether or not to tell the truth, and Candy's presence indicates he definitely lies about Mia. In the event Mia leaves him, Charlie does not burn a bridge. Okay, I'm hoping to get more into Alan and Candy, and I believe the next paragraph does so. And Candy is kind of a fan favorite, and we need to talk about her before we actually get into her. So if you're not familiar with Candy... Candy is an unintelligent woman who Charlie previously dated. She actually appears in an episode before her actual introduction when Mia catches Charlie and Candy together. But she possesses um, a pleasant personality. I mean, she's kind. She actually seems to really love... Alan in fact she returns in a later season and says that Alan is the best lover that she's ever had and it's interesting because there's this thin line between being insulting to women in general and insulting to one woman's intelligence because Candy actually grows she's actually able to become uh, a well-known television actress within the 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 universe of two and a half men. She's on a CSI style show. And I I would be lying if I said she got that on pure talent alone, but it's a it's a move in a different direction for her character because Before that, she was reliant on other men to get by because, as it's shown in the episode where Alan goes to her apartment, she sleeps on a mattress on a floor and she has roommates, so she's not exactly living the high life. And I like Candy. I wish that she had a little bit more depth. And I'm not going to sit here and try to pretend that there aren't people... Who exist like candy, whether they're they're men or women. There are plenty of people out there who are men or women who are unintelligent, but they have good qualities. They they are often uh, attractive, and sometimes someone who spends a lot of time on their appearance. And I'm not trying to insult anyone out there, but someone who actually spends a lot of time thinking about their appearance is neglecting other parts of themselves that they could be focused on like their intellect like reading a book you know it's it's not uncommon for someone who goes to the gym for 4 hours a day every day of the week or most of the week for them to not be the best conversationalist i'm not saying that they don't exist but you get what i'm i'm talking about someone who spends a lot of time on their physical appearance in that way they're generally not someone who would look for the depth in another person because they themselves don't have a lot of depth. And, yeah, this is something that other people have covered much better than I have, and I don't need to to go into it more. Given Alan's characterization as the show's poindexter, the audience does not expect a relationship with Candy, especially one that lasts until the end of season four. Candy's uniquely inept dialect and beauty portray her as temporary comic relief like another one of Charlie's Conquest without a last name or identity. Thus, her eventual marriage to Alan, which provides her with a last name and motivation for an acting career, seems unlikely in this episode. After all, Charlie's season arc focuses on his doomed relationship with Mia and Alan spent the first two seasons hoping to rekindle his marriage. Considering Candy is originally Charlie's rebound for Mia. No one suspects she serves, as, she serves as a role in Alan's story arc. When Alan greets Charlie in the morning as they drink coffee, he asks, Since you're swimming in lake monogamy, as it were, would you mind if I ask Candy out sometime? And Charlie says, Go for it. The elder Harper believes Alan has no chance with, at scoring Candy. Then she runs into the kitchen wearing Alan's undershirt, exclaiming, Morning, Huggy Bear! Comedic element of surprise aside, Candy falling for Alan is not supposed to happen in the series universe, and is ironic. As if swapping roles, Alan now has a seemingly meaningless sexual fling, while Charlie tries maintaining his chastity for Mia. Of course, Candy's significance signals a change in Alan... As the series continues, Alan's sexual perversions flourish, and the upstanding family man who inspired envy in Charlie no longer exists. Candy represents the life Alan never experienced as a young man. Aging men often date younger women to feel youthful or take the risk they forwent due to commitments, careers, and fatherhood. Alan dating Candy is a direct response to the societal standards that tore his family apart. When Judith drops off Jake, Candy greets them wearing a Catholic girl's school uniform and Alan appears later wearing a priest's clerical collar while holding a bottle of wine. Judith angrily asks, are you proud of yourself? She's half your age, which prompts Alan, oh that. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. This moment showcases Alan's morals breaking down. The man wearing a tucked-in shirt with a conservative haircut in the pilot episode that loved his wife and told Charlie he would only stay a few nights is now role-playing as a priest with a woman half his age. Judith questions Alan, and I'm supposed to leave Jake here? What kind of message does that send him? Alan's response encapsulates his regrets and making up for lost time. Dreams can come true. Alan does not give up on parenting Jake quickly, but rather over the course of multiple seasons as he encounters more hardships keeping him living under Charlie's roof and Jake's increasing ignorance. Since Alan reverts to his life before marriage as he courts candy, he fails balancing his romantic life with raising his son. While the audience cheers him on, Judith expresses the correct sentiment. And now that my father has called me and threatened to listen to this podcast, which I didn't tell him the title of it... I joked around in the last episode and I said, hi, dad. I would rather him not listen to this, especially with the examples of uh, toxic masculinity I, I gave in my last episode. It's all true. I, I'm not lying. I'm not making shit up. But, you know, it's stuff that he may not want people knowing. Although no one knows that he's my dad, even though we look exactly the same and have the same last name. It's, it, we, who, who would be able to tell? I mean, really? Come on. But that does happen when a man or a woman, for that matter, after a divorce decides to start dating again and they have children. They can sometimes neglect their children. And, you know... I know some people who are very careful about that to the point where they're, they're not really giving their love life a lot of attention because they have so much time spent with their, their child. They're trying to raise this child the best that they can. And in doing so, you know a lot of people who are on the, the receiving end of that in a romantic relationship, they're not always fulfilled and they end up leaving. And so the cycle continues. Anyway, after consummating their relationship, I scrolled down too far. Charlie faces either returning to Pavlov's bar to lure more women home for one night stands or continuing to see Mia and face the reality that he does not possess the substance she requires in a relationship. When Charlie and Mia reconcile, they book a room at the Bel Air Hotel, and the following scene depicts how incompatible they are as a couple, even while taking their relationship to a more intimate level. When Mia represents herself, when Mia presents herself in lingerie, Charlie picks her up and hits her head against the doorframe before stumping his toe on the way to bed, drops Mia, and they look at one another while writhing in pain with the bed between them. That was a very long sentence. Symbolically, sex acts as a divider in their relationship. As Charlie chases the idea of sex with Mia, she pushes that side of Charlie away. When they finally act on his sole desire, they both face physical injury. Mia giving in to Charlie reveals their relationship like substance, and they are not meant for one another, but neither confronts this realization. Charlie looks distressed when the scene cuts to them half-clothed in bed, and Mia says, It wasn't that bad. While Charlie acts like a sexual expert throughout the show, the true disappointment lies with the anticipation. He waited over a month to have sex with Mia, and the result did not unify their souls or provide enlightenment. Instead, he underperformed and lost a reason to to pursue Mia. I can read words. Charlie tells her, you're insane, which prompts Mia. Why? Because I love the real you? His comeback confirms what the audience already knows. Because you think there is a real me. At this moment, their relationship should dissolve. Instead, neither admits they lied to themselves. The real Charlie wants someone like Mia because he fears aging alone as younger women begin to lose interest in him. In the following episode, my tongue is meat, Mia tries reforming Charlie another way, taking away his vices. Listen, I have to drink some Coke Zero before we get into this. I intend to get more reading done today. Believe me you, it's going to happen. But I'm going to have to take some breaks here and there, and you need to respect that, goddammit. You have no idea what I've been through recording this podcast. I've had two phone calls, one with my, my dad, one with my mother, not my mother, my wife. Ooh, Freudian slip. Ooh, boy, we are getting into psychology today. No, my I, th- 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 that's the thing. My, my wife and my mother have absolutely nothing in common. It, it's crazy because I often think that maybe the way that my wife acts is karma for the way that I acted with my mother growing up. I'm a lot more like my mother than my wife is like my mother. But I cannot deny the, co- the, the comedy in a Freudian slip like that. And I'm going to leave it in. I don't care what, what you think, you piece of shit. Unlike Charlie, who feigns interest in Mia for sex, Alan attempts to get to know Candy as they continue their casual sexual relationship because he cannot form a bond based on intimacy. Candy likes depth, though. Foster writes her as one of Charlie's typical one-night stands who manage, who, ooh, Alan manages to seize. As she plays a zombie video game in her school, go- school girl uniform, Alan appears in his normal conservative attire to talk, and she asks, You want to have sex? In contrast to Charlie's relationship with Mia, Alan has the perfect partner. He says, Actually, I do. Maybe we can spend a little more time getting to know each other first. He makes the same mistake as Mia when she courts Charlie. Their relationship parallels one another throughout Season 3 as Alan trades places with Charlie while retaining his obsessive compulsive persona. Unlike Charlie, Alan marries Candy, effectively what wedding his rebound and the relationship ends with alan's second divorce however very akin to charlie alan ignores red flags due to his fear of loneliness he confides in in candy i never should have gotten married i was young i didn't know who i was i was just afraid of being alone alan realizes his marriage to judith was set up for failure and makes the same mistake with Candy. Even when she says you shouldn't tell people that stuff, it makes you seem it makes you sound like a loser. He grabs her from the couch to have sex in the other room. At this point, Alan's deficiency no longer lies with Evelyn or an absent father. Candy point Blake provides a warning sign that their relationship will not last because she lacks the intellectual depth he requires in a partner, yet he cannot see past his lust. Why am I hitting myself? Chuck Lorre and Lee Aronson pull the curtain on Charlie's charade in My Tongue is Meat. You know what's amazing is that I have a pop filter built into this Rode microphone that I'm holding, and yet there's still going to be pops now and then. Technology As he tries changing himself for Mia, which builds his resentment towards her as he has to seek vices and secret. After returning from a run all the way to the pier and back, Charlie looks near death while Mia retains an energetic disposition. She hands him a protein shake and Charlie looks repulsed as he drinks from the glass. After she leaves to take a shower, Charlie asks Alan, Why is there this little voice in my head whispering, Kill yourself, do it now. Alan responds, Every man who gets into a long term relationship hears that voice. No comment. While Candy does not appear in this episode, Alan is still dating her at this point. However, Candy does not make him change his lifestyle habits, unlike Mia. Prior to Mia, Charlie does not exercise or seek healthy meal substitutes. At this point, Charlie feels stuck and obeys Mia's insistence that he start exercising, quit eating meat, and not smoke cigars or drink alcohol while she is around. Which is a very dangerous thing to do when someone's an alcoholic. Only a seen later, he lies to Mia that he is going out for a walk when he enters the garage. After grabbing a lawn chair and paint bucket, he reveals a cigar and Heineken bottle. Normally, Charlie smokes on the deck while looking at the beach. Numerous episodes end with Charlie outside smoking and drinking. Rather than relaxing in the light on a comfortable chair, he consumes his vices in darkness. Despite that his normal habits are detrimental to his well-being, Charlie resorts to lying because he cannot give up drinking. Since he drinks every day, Mia should understand he has a problem, but instead expects him to change for her. An alcoholic quitting cold turkey is dangerous, so she essentially expects him to either end up in the hospital or sneak around. Yeah, again, Mia's not good for Charlie. Not saying she's a bad person, although expecting an alcoholic to quit cold turkey is not very nice. I guess saying not very nice is an understatement. I'm great at understatements, but she's she's just not suited for Charlie, and the charade is just going to keep going. His family, his family, Berta and Rose, understand Charlie's alcoholism and accept it. Rose actually encourages it. Even Evelyn never expresses concern about his daily drinking. Despite Mia's good intentions, she fails at understanding her partner's needs and inhibitions. In order to conform to Mia's insistence that he change his lifestyle, Charlie tries fitting Bly's fifties man archetype like Alan and strays from his rugged and less stylized fashion sense. Before their date, Charlie runs down the stairs wearing a suit, black slacks, gray blazer, pink shirt, and paisley tie. Mia is dressing him now as he no longer sports a bowling shirt and shorts. The pink shirt and tie particularly alter his laid-back masculine style and make him appear more cosmopolitan and less like a rugged alcoholic. Mia calls down to him to not eat anything before they go to a new vegetarian restaurant. Rose appears on the deck with cheeseburgers, which Charlie begins eating as if he is starving. Again, Charlie participates in deception, but giving up meat is another huge lifestyle change. Rose says... May I say, I would never try to change you the way she has. Despite that she is a stalker who enables Charlie's bad habits, she is a good friend. Mia maintains little respect for the actual Charlie Harper and forces him to transform. When Mia tells Charlie she is almost ready to leave, he spits out the food and makes Rose leave. Given a little more time, Rose would likely console Charlie about his unhealthy relationship. I should say counsel, not console. Unlike Mia, Evelyn, or Chelsea, Rose does not want to control Charlie, only obtain him as her partner. Although there is an episode where she keeps drugging him in order to keep him under her spell for a while. And that's very toxic and illegal. Over dinner, Mia reveals a baneful position on Charlie's career, which mirrors his... (laughs) Why? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I read this I wrote it of course I can only proofread something that's over a hundred pages so well I had a professor someone with a doctorate read this I had two other professors with doctorates read this I had someone in the English department read this and there are still issues with syntax and some just errors. There aren't like typos per se, like misspelled words, but there are issues within this thesis. And you know, I I kind of wonder if they fixed that before they published it because it did take them a few weeks to to do that. I don't know. I kind of feared that so much, but uh, I'm hoping that anyone who reads this is forgiving because my God. So this sentence, over dinner, Mia reveals a baneful position on Charlie's career, which mirrors his Evelyn's disappointment in his jingle writing. I think what happened there is I said his mother's disappointment in his jingle writing. And it's not even disappointment. It's written as disappoint. See, you know, none of us are perfect. And... This isn't even... I don't even know if this is the final draft. There's so many different documents and versions of this thesis. It's ridiculous. Earnestly, okay, I I can't interrupt myself and then force myself to get back on track. I have to go back to where I was. Mia says, Do you really want to be known as a guy who writes songs about adult diapers? We both know you can do so much more with your life. Earnestly, Charlie makes a great livelihood as a jingle writer. While Mia lives in an apartment and teaches ballet, Charlie owns a Mercedes, a beach house in Malibu, and does not answer to a corporate entity. Wanting to change his bad habits exhibits Mia's virtuous intent, but belittling his career casts her in a poor light. Obviously, Aronson and Lori set her character up as the villain as Charlie ends their relationship in this episode, but she represents a societal double standard. Making money and living life in his own way makes Charlie a hero to some, yet jingle writing is not a noble profession in many people's eyes. Obtaining financial success is integral to the American dream, but not writing ten-second songs about cereal somehow makes Charlie... Less of a success. Money does not buy virtue, though. Charlie's profession is legal and lucrative, as seen in the pilot episode. Charlie's maple loops jingle brings Jake joy. However, Jake, however, Charlie will never be good enough in Mia's eyes until he finds another profession. Rather than finding a suitable partner, Mia tries to craft Charlie into something he is not. So he hides his habits in his own ho- in his own home. She never questions the psychological reasoning behind Charlie's lifestyle to solve the greater problem. Charlie drinks to distance himself from reality. He will never marry a woman and start a family like Alan. And sobriety proves, sobriety provides too much time to linger on his trauma. Then he has to admit that Mia is not an ideal partner for him and he only pursued her because she was resistant to his advances. He finally snaps, I'm done with this whole charade. I'm tired of you trying to make me over into something I'm not. I'm a grown man, not a work in progress. This statement offers a brutal honesty even Charlie does not realize. As an addict, Charlie cannot grow as a person, and Mia stunts her own growth as she tries to change him. This moment provides a moment of clarity for him as well. He will not evolve as a person, so pursuing Mia is ignorant and actually a drunken man trying to accomplish what requires a sober mindset. Unable to realize their relationship is toxic, Charlie goes to Mia's apartment to reconcile, only to discover a woman he is truly compatible with, a stripper named Ginger. Mia left for a job in New York without telling him, so Ginger invites him inside so she can find the address while he calls the airport to book a flight. After offering Charlie a drink and letting him eat some of her baby back ribs, Ginger asks, Hey, do you mind if I turn on the TV? I got some money on the Lakers. In this moment, Charlie hangs up his cell phone and realizes there are people out there who accept him. Without even knowing anything about Charlie, Ginger makes him feel at home and even offers to give him a lap dance without provocation. Ignoring the morality of these two characters, they do not ask one another to change. One of my worries with covering this series is that I'm not giving enough commentary outside of my thesis and that I'm going to be skipping around too much for anyone to get the point that I'm trying to drive home or maybe I'm I'm driving it home too far. And this next paragraph is about Ergo the Booty Call, which focuses more on Alan's relationship with Candy. And I'm thinking that after I finish this chapter I can go ahead and get to season eight. I know that that might that may disappoint some of you. It'd probably make a lot of you fucking happy. But this 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 is too dense for me to cover on the podcast in a way that it deserves, I guess. I I could have done a whole podcast series on Two and a Half Men outside of Demise of the Podcast. So um, we're going to read a little bit further, and then we will conclude today's episode and maybe this weekend I will get into season 8, and then we can move on from there. I might do a solo episode where I ramble. I haven't done one of those in a little while. Don Foster continues Alan's arc with Candy and Falling from Grace and Ergo the Booty Call. Alan sneaks inside and removes his clothes to reveal a pair of pajamas so he can hide that he slept over at Candy's apartment from Jake. Charlie reads the magazine in the living room and offers commentary on Alan's latest behavior. Here's a fun fact. You're sleeping with a girl who was born when you were in junior high, yet there's a good chance she lost her virginity before you did. If the schoolgirl outfit in the previous episode only appears as a kink to the audience, here Foster drives home the implications in Alan dating a 22-year-old woman. I'm 30 and I wouldn't date a 22-year-old woman. Jesus Christ. The episode's introduction depicts Alan neglecting his parental duties, again, I'm, I'm pronouncing that wrong, it's parental, which differs from his previous characterization as always putting Jake first. Alan responds to Charlie, Her youth is like an aphrodisiac. I feel younger. Apart from the cliched older man chasing his younger days through a woman's youth, Alan never considers... Alan's mental uh, woo. Alan never considers Candy's mental age. Charlie's comment about her losing her virginity before Alan might ring true, considering her emotional immaturity and high sex drive. Foster never directly pinpoints Alan as taking advantage of Candy, and no one scolds him for doing so. But he definitely gains nothing but sexual gratification in this relationship. I don't know if. I wrote about this or I'm just remembering it, but the fact that Candy lost her virginity at a very young age, like when she was in junior high, I kind of think that she, if, in all likelihood, if she lost it consensually, it was probably to an older man, given her, um, her, her lust for older men. But I also think that there's a possibility that she was either molested or or she was, um, you know, you know where I'm going with this. Because she sees sex as a huge part of her personality and her value, unfortunately. And uh, she uses it almost as currency in a, in a relationship. She doesn't know how else to express herself. She doesn't do it very well verbally. So, I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time analyzing candy as thoroughly As I could have because I'm trying to focus on Alan and Charlie because this is about toxic masculinity, not about every character on the fucking show. But there is a a very definite possibility that Candy faced some sort of sexual trauma early in her life and this might be a reason why she does it. Now, some people might take offense to that because... People who have a, an, a very high sex drive, they may just naturally have that, and that's perfectly fine. I'm not dogging on those people. I... I, I I'm i not going to talk about it anymore. After a marriage that lacked in intimacy in Alan and Judith's final years, Candy presents Alan's opportunity to embrace his inner Charlie Harper, the man he avoids channeling for years. Jake's character takes a back seat in this episode, despite the half the show ramps around ramps toward his 12th birthday party. Alan not only shows up late to his son's party, but he stays at Candy's apartment twice while his son is sleeping over at Charlie's house. When Candy shows up for a booty call, Jake hears her conversation with Alan and asks Charlie, what's a booty call? Charlie passes the buck. This is more the kind of thing a son should learn from his father. Maybe you should ask him now. Transforming from the family man into a bad influence signifies a further departure in Alan's behavior as his son witnesses him dating a woman only 10 years Jake Sr. Despite that is that accurate? Despite that Jake questions the term booty call, he knows Alan and Candy are having sex. Foster further blurs the lines when Candy joins Jake to play video games again when Alan tries dismissing Jake from his conversation with her. Alan serves as her stand-in father, and Jake sees her as more of a friend or sibling when he invites her to his birthday party. While Jake and Candy differ in age, Alan practically dates one of Jake's peers due to her immaturity. Charlie points out, Well, this works out. When you're not boinking her, she's got someone to play with. Even this statement fails to help Alan realize he's taking advantage of Candy. While he is a 30-something divorcee with a son, Candy sleeps on a mattress in a cluttered room in an apartment she shares with two other 20-somethings. Alan's only fear is angering Judith when Candy shows up to Jake's birthday party. In this instance, Charlie encourages the relationship. Alan, there comes a time in every man's life when he has to make a choice. Does he want to be loved or does he want to get laid? Now fate is giving you another chance. Welcome it. Considering Charlie ended his relationship with Mia in the previous episode, this advice sounds wise to him, but neglects the age difference. After all, Charlie was originally... Candy was originally Charlie's intended rebound from Mia before his girlfriend caught him, caught them on the balcony. I need some Coke Zero, for God's sake. Oh, God. I'm tired of this. I'm not gonna lie. I love talking about two and a half men, but I fucking hate reading this shit right now. But I started and I'm gonna finish it. He never saw a relationship in her, but rather a one-night stand. While Charlie's peers and family expect him to date a woman like Candy, Alan plays against his character, and people view him as more lecherous than Charlie. As a result, when he shows up late to Charlie to Jake's birthday party, Judith, Evelyn, and their friends look at Alan as if he is a dirty old man. After admitting, "Sorry, we're late, but I was having sex with this gorgeous twenty-two-year-old woman," Jesus Christ, he mentions her name like Candy as a trophy. She stands next to him like a big fish he caught. For once, Alan has no shame about indulging in his withheld sexuality, but the only reason he sexually starved in his marriage was due to his traditionalism and obsessive compulsion smothering of Judith, oh Jesus Christ, rather than reflect on how his behavior as a husband affected his wife and resulted in less intimacy, Alan assumes he did everything right because he followed societal guidelines for how a man should run his household and appear to the world. Candy embodies his failure as the traditional American husband, and he transforms into the stereotypical divorcee facing a midlife crisis. I'm going to be skipping a lot of material if I go straight to season eight in the next episode, but I'm going to, I'm going to have to, I may read the conclusion as well, which is an entire chapter unto itself, but boy, will that take some time. This podcast has been very interesting this year. You know, last year I tried to focus more on short fiction and essays like David Sedaris' stuff. And this year I've gone back to longer form, but I've covered several novels in one episode instead of covering them over the course of several episodes like I usually do. And then I did six, technically seven episodes for Invisible Man. It's been uh, an interesting 2022 But Variety is the spice of life, and this is sort of like a new season of the podcast. So hopefully you guys are into it to a degree, at least for my commentary. My new book just came out, as I said in the last episode, Birch, and I read a a page from it. I don't know if I should read more. I didn't even think to do that in this episode. Maybe I should, just to kind of give you a taste of it. I'll, ri- I'll read you something that I'm a bit more passionate about. I'm, I'm over two and a half men right now. I loved the series so much, and I loved working on that thesis so much until it came time to edit it and present my defense, of course. But that's a different story that I've already covered on the podcast. But with Birch... You know what I love about Birch and Surviving New America is that I wrote them both in less than a year. Uh, Birch took a lot less time than Surviving New America did. Um, The writing process for this novel was very interesting because the first draft is... uh, I, I will say it is significantly different from the second draft because with surviving new America, I didn't do extensive rewrites, but with this book, I ended up rewriting half of it. And then I ended up re incorporating parts of the first draft into this draft that you see before you. So it's a, it's an interesting experience and I really wanted to play on the audience's expectations and what they thought was going to happen because realistically, um, uh, it's just a, a wild ride, and I don't think that anyone will come out of it with a definitive answer as to what happens to Birch throughout all of this. But I'm going to, to actually follow back up where I left off last time, and let me take some, some Coke Zero into my mouth. It's funny, I have a podcast that's spanned... Over 130 episodes and I still don't know how to speak. I get that from my mother. Then there's red. Seagulls clatter, chatter. Waves touch my feet. When I sit up, the coast isn't empty anymore. A row of houses lines the street and my home either shrunk or flew off in a twister. A husband and wife with their little girl let the water run up their legs and run back to the dry land while squealing. I try to imagine Emerald Isle empty again. My thoughts have no bearing on my surroundings, so if I'm not dreaming I was successful in expelling Satan's power. For some reason that realization seems outlandish if not cheesy, as if I was a warlock or wizard. The man notices me and waves. I want to run away as he approaches me, yet I return his eye contact while staying in place. He's about six feet tall and obviously lifts, but he eats some donuts here and there. "'You doing okay, buddy?' he asks. "'I'm not actually sure where I am,' I say. Last thing I remember was a bottle of tequila and people cheering me on. The laughter tells me he buys that lie, How exactly do I explain that I'm part of the Trinity and may not be from this time? Is this the past or future? You got a phone, he asks. You mean like a cell phone? Well, I I don't see a landline coming out of your ass. He waves an iPhone around and offers to let me use it, but I shake my head and put my hands on my hips as if I'm communicating that I've been in the situation before. Again, he laughs, and I'm not totally sure how to approach the subject of what year I'm in. No one had a cell phone in New America. Sorry, I'll, I'll be okay. I'm just a little hungover. I get it, man. Want me to call you an Uber or something? Uh, no, sir, I say. Thanks for offering. I- I'll walk. If I no longer have the satanic power, did I finally reverse my frozen age? Am I still in the Trinity? Could I go drown myself right now? Actually, I say, could you do me a favor? I don't have any money on me, he says. This won't cost you anything. you like you're pretty strong. Could you hit me? Excuse me, he asks. In the jaw. See if you can break my jaw. I'm going back to my family, he says. You take care. But wait. I grab his wrist. That... Makes Mrs. Big Guy tense, and she picks up Little Miss Big Guy. I'm not into traumatizing women and children, but she might get a rush seeing her husband punch a guy. I don't mean to be weird, I say. I just need to see something. You gonna sue me if I do this? I don't have any money or a lawyer. I don't even know where I am. Emerald Isle, North Carolina. Where are you from, bud? Originally, I say... Atlanta area. Of course, I left home in 2009. You don't look that old. Look, if I hit you, I might really hurt you. Holding my hands in the air, I nod. He looks back at his wife and daughter before considering me. Clenching his right fist, the man pulls his arm, so I shut my eyes. The impact knocks me on the sand, and he shouts as if I'm the one who hit him. My teeth scrape together, yet I'm still able to move my jaw around. Hell, I may have broken his knuckles. This a fucking setup, he asked. You got a metal skull or something? No, I say. I'm stuck here, man. Stuck in a time I wish I could forget. I'm done with this conversation, so I head for the nearest stairway back to the street. Cars are lined up on the sidewalks. A woman in a big sun hat carries a recyclable grocery bag from a sedan I don't even recognize. When she goes inside, I cross back and get a look at the distinct silver tee it named Tesla. This must be some custom novelty. There were a few people in New America still driving Edisons, but most walked and teleported to get around. A New York Times sits rolled up on the ladies' front steps. I grab it and look for the date. June 1st, 2015. A little boy has been over a glass looking down on NYC. Did I kill myself and end up in heaven or purgatory? Everything around here reminds me of 2015. That was the year I first killed Lucifer on Earth and met Lilith. If I went back in time, will I run into myself? I could stop 2033 from happening and take care of the Antichrist now. But there's more to this to, to this than time travel. Something feels different, sir. The woman looks at me from the front door with her sunglasses pushed into her blonde hair. I drop the paper and head toward the end of the street. Since I don't have any money, a car or a phone, I'm stranded here unless I convince someone to give me a ride. The only friend I might have is in Charleston, but I didn't talk to her until after I moved to. Phila- I didn't talk to her after I moved to Philadelphia until 2033. Then she died. Her name was Monsoon, and she gave me the name people still call me. Well, they called me Birch in New America. I haven't gone by my real name since we met. She taught me how to survive without a real job, and if I'm still bulletproof, then I only know one way to make quick money. I want to chime in here and tell you that I did look up the front page of the New York Times for that particular date and it did have a little boy standing on one of those glass floors looking down in New York, or at least I assume it was New York. I need a mask to conceal my face, and it's not unlikely one of these bigger houses has a few ski masks. The type to live here is the same type to take holidays in Aspen. There's a gaudy green one with two floors and a deck you could see across the street. I bet they listen to Steely Dan and refuse to perform oral sex on each other. The front door is unlocked and a red-skinned fellow with khaki shorts stands at his kitchen counter opening a jar of pickles. A little early for something sour, his grandchildren play with their tablets in front of the TV. I don't see a woman around, so she's probably upstairs or outside. Excuse me, he approaches. Oh, is this the Thompson place, I ask? I'm here about the water heater. And you just walk inside? Get the fuck out! The kids are almost interested enough to stop playing their games, but they keep swiping their screens as their grandfather tries pointing me out with his boomer index finger. I grab it and bend the old digit back. Do you ever make it out to Aspen, sir? What the fuck? He wheezes. Do you own or rent? I ask. I mean, do you have some gear here? What do you want? My grandkids are watching. Do you have a ski mask? Yes. In fact, he has a garage I didn't notice. Inside are jet skis, a couple of surfboards, and actual skis. He opens a metal cabinet and produces a blue and red ski mask. If his wife is inside, she's probably called the police by now. It's, there's not a car in here, though. Sorry about your finger, I say. Will you please go now, he asks. Grabbing a hammer from a workbench, the burnt asshole tries hitting me in the head. It hurts some, but the metal recoils in his hand. Rather than pick it off the floor and jam it in his ass, I know he has a right to be angry and protect himself. I was just going to leave with the ski mask, I say. I don't want to hurt you or the kids. Then get the fuck out, he says. Look. I'm sorry, I say. I'm not from here. I don't even know where here is. I woke up, and it's 2015. You in a coma or something? No, I'm from 2140. In 2033, the world is going to nearly end. The electricity is going to be gone for over 50 years. It'll get brutal, but you probably won't live to see it. Do you need me to take you to a doctor or something? I leave the way I came inside. The first business I see is an Ace Hardware next to a small shopping strip. It's not a bank, but they must have cash. While I may be able to intimidate an old parrot head, most men are a little taller than me. I never saw a reason to put on muscle mass, and I am notoriously pretty bad at fighting. I take my hits until the other guy tires himself out, and they're usually intimidated by my invulnerability. I'm going to stop here and note that in a previous episode of the podcast I said I wasn't going to cover Birch on here I evidently lied but here's the thing this is part of the Two and a Half Men series so if you're listening to this I assume that you'll want to hear it I'm not doing a full episode on Birch it's not a big deal if you don't want to listen to it you could have stopped long ago it's early early enough that no one is shopping in here Generally, any retail place isn't going to have much cash on hand. By 2015, I believe most people use debit cards anyway. Without a bank account, I'm going to be living like a rat. The guy behind the counter plays a game on his iPhone. He must be about 19. Curly hair that hasn't been brushed and no real way to identify him as an employee tells me this won't be difficult. He works here as a summer gig and doesn't have his life invested in anything except the ocean and girls. Excuse me, I tap on the counter. He looks up from his phone, and why did Microsoft Word do that? Motherfucker. I hate Microsoft Word. I want it to go die in a fiery ditch somewhere. It sucks. I hate you. I hate this house. I don't want to to live here anymore. I'm packing my things, and I'm leaving. Anyway, I still haven't found where I was. He looks up from his phone and sees a guy in a ski mask. Rather than back up against the wall, he keeps looking as if I'm totally normal. Maybe it's the color scheme. It's too hot outside for this mask, though. Can you open the cash register without making a transaction, I ask? No, if you want change, you have to buy something. Okay, well, ring up something and then give me all the money in your drawer. Oh, are you doing cash back? No, I'm robbing you. There is a, there's a display of Altoids on the counter, so I grab a box and toss it to him. He rings it up and opens the drawer and stands there with his hand out for the money. Walking around the counter, I push him to the floor and look in the register to see five twenties, ten tens, a few fives, and twenty ones. When he stands back up, he rubs the back of his head as if he fell on it, but he definitely landed on his ass. If you call the police, I'll come back and kill you. Okay, he says. Does anything faze you, kid? What does that mean? No one notices the guy taking off a ski mask outside. Without a car, the police will be able to find me pretty quick based on a description or camera footage. No one else is wearing a black shirt and jeans in the middle of summer here. Next to a food line is a clothing store called Alabam's. The disple- the, dis- Whoa, the display window only shows women's dresses. A bookstore and an Italian restaurant sit on either side. There's not a Goodwill nearby either. I used to live in this time yet I'm lost. If I was going back in time or wherever I am I should have kept some power. Instead I'm homeless and just robbed a teenage boy. Quite a fall from grace. Without changing my clothes I need to get out of town. There's a man wearing a baseball cap and suspenders bent over his trunk, putting away groceries. Waiting for him to finish, I place my hand on his cart and offer to put it back for him. Without responding, he waves while walking around to the driver's site with his keys out. Do I pummel this old guy in the parking lot or force him to drive me? Rather than stand there deliberating, I open the passenger door and get very much the same look the guy at the beach house gave me. I just tried to drink out of the wrong end of my Yeti. Jesus Christ mm. rather than stand there okay I already read that as I sit down I, I hold up the ski mask and wink do you think you could get me out of here I ask I gotta get home sir he says my wife's expecting me she was in the middle of mixing a cake and we didn't have any good milk you bought a, a lot more than milk I say we needed a few other things why am I explaining this to you get out of my car Placing a hand on his shoulder, I guide his hand to the gear shift and smile. My name is Birch, I say. What's yours? Edward, he says. Edward Pine. Mr. Pine, I'm not from here. I'd like to get off Emerald Isle so I can figure out what's going on. I'm lost, you see. Otherwise, I'm going to kick you out of this car and run over your legs. Without arguing, Edward barks... Edward backs out of the spot and... (laughs) heads toward the main road. Pulling his Blackberry away, I figure it's time to do some research. The first thing I search is Fonda Communications to see if Freudland launched the satellites yet. In my time, he obliterated companies like Verizon and AT&T by giving the world free Wi-Fi. Then he took it away in 2033 when we'd grown dependent on his service. You calling someone? Edward asked. Have you ever heard of Fonda Communications, I ask? No, sir. That a telephone company? What about Central Network, I ask? No. Does the name Walter Grone mean anything? Never met a Walter. You really aren't aren't from here, are you? Opening the White Pages website, I look up Arthur Lindsay, Aroma Thorne, Marie Grone, Ken Price, and others I knew. I know Veronica Price wouldn't be listed anywhere. If I could meet her again, I'd protect her from kin this time. None of these names pull any results, though. Even my parents' names don't seem to exist. I can take you as far as Jacksonville, North Carolina, Edward says. Then you got to decide where to go next. That'll be fine, Mr. Pine. Thank you for listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway. Happy reading, happy week, happy holiday, happy fucking whatever the hell you want it to be. Bye.